are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. With me today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, award-winning volunteer for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, teacher, photographer, mom, and co-host extraordinaire. Thanks for being with me again today, Michelle. Thank you for having me today, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. We are recording in June, right at the end of June, but people will be hearing this a little bit later. This episode is scheduled to be released on July 13th. On July 13th, 1985, the Live Aid Benefit Concert took place in London and other locations. July 13th is also the birthday of actors Harrison Ford, Patrick Stewart, and Cheech Marin. It also happens to be the birthday of a certain podcast host who will remain nameless. Well, I know that's not my birthday, so it must be yours, Jeremy. Happy birthday. Could be. Thank you. It's also the birthday of Roger McGuinn, the singer and musician who is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as the frontman for The Birds. He did the version of This Little Light of Mine that we usually play at the end of this podcast. That's right. Yeah, I've been a fan of Roger McGuinn from way back. Uh, I love The Birds. I saw him in concert uh, back in 1975. I guess I'm uh, dating myself just a little bit there. Uh, That was when I was a freshman at Colgate University, and I saw him again later in New Orleans. Uh, Roger McGuinn is a really great entertainer. Here's a little trivia. Before the Birds were formed as a band, Roger McGuinn played on recordings by Judy Collins and Simon and Garfunkel. I think I've heard that somewhere. But this is a podcast about lighthouses, so we should probably talk about lighthouses. Today is the first of two episodes focusing on light stations that are owned by the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine. Today we're talking about Great Duck Island, and next week we'll talk about Mount Desert Rock. Michelle, please help tell our listeners about Great Duck Island and our guest, John Anderson. Sure, Jeremy. Maine's Great Duck Island is more than 200 acres in size and about nine miles south of the much larger Mount Desert Island. There was discussion of establishing a lighthouse on the island as early as 1823 to aid mariners heading to the Mount Desert area in Blue Hill Bay from the south. But decades would pass before the idea became reality. The Lighthouse Board recommended a light station on the island in 1885 and funds were appropriated in 1889. The light was established on December 31, 1890, with a 42-foot-tall cylindrical brick tower, three keepers' dwellings, a fog signal building, and other outbuildings. Ad Reed arrived as an assistant keeper in 1902. Reed came to the island with his wife Emma and their 16 children. The Reeds were probably the largest family in American Lighthouse history. One of the Reeds' older daughters, Rena eventually got a teaching certificate in Castine and was able to teach her younger siblings in the island's tiny schoolroom. The light was automated in 1986 and the fourth order Fresnel lens was replaced by a modern optic. The light remains an active aid to navigation while most of the rest of the island was purchased by the main chapter of the Nature Conservancy in 1984. In 1998, Great Duck Island Light, along with Mount Desert Rock Light, became the property of Bar Harbor's College of the Atlantic under the Maine Lights program 
College of the Atlantic owns approximately 12 acres, consisting of one remaining keeper's house, two boathouses, and the lighthouse. In 2000, the station was renamed the Alice Eno Field Research Station in honor of a long-standing trustee who dedicated enormous amounts of her time facilitating research on Maine's coast. Students and staff from the college now live in the former keeper's dwelling much of the year. The College of the Atlantic's ongoing research projects on the island include the monitoring of the large nesting gull population, as well as detailed study of black guillemots and the nocturnal leeches storm petrel. John Anderson has been a professor at College of the Atlantic for more than 30 years. He teaches zoology, ecology, and animal behavior, and he's a W.H. Drury Professor of Ecology and Natural History. He's a New Zealander by nationality, British by upbringing, and has spent time in the UK, Europe, and the Western US. His field research centers around Great Duck Island. He says he's interested in the intersection between natural history and human history in relation to long-term ecological processes. I visited Great Duck Island with John, his daughter, and some of his students back in 2002 on two different days, and it was a great experience I'll never forget. I had the pleasure of getting reacquainted with him when we had a conversation in early June. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am speaking with John Anderson of the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine. John, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Glad to chat. Thank you. So I had the pleasure of visiting Great Duck Island with you back in 2002. It was an amazing experience. And it's great to talk with you again. In a few minutes, I want to talk about what happens specifically with the uh, the programs on the island and also about the light station buildings. But I'd, I'd just like to start by talking just a little bit about you. I was looking at your biography on the College of the Atlantic website. Uh, you mentioned that your mother was a scientist and your father was a historian. Uh, I'm wondering how you think those two influences uh, come together in the work you do on Great Duck Island. Well, I, mean, I think in many ways it really set me up for coming to College of the Atlantic. We do just have this one degree in human ecology, which tries to blend the arts, the sciences, and the humanities. And so we're looking for students who aren't going to be tightly locked into one particular track, but really see the advantage of real interdisciplinary work. And Great Duck really is all about that human ecology. So what we've been trying to do since we inherited the light station is basically put together a human ecological natural history of the island. And that means that the human history matters just as much in some ways as the non-human history. And the non-human history informs the human history in a really interesting sort of dance. So we don't really break them out into any particular this is human, this is non-human, it's all talking to each other at the same time. You've already kind of answered my second question. I was going to ask you, uh, do you if you feel the history of the light station and its keepers at, on the island has an influence on the work you do on the island or on your thinking in general, but I don't know if you want to expand on that at all. Uh, is that something that enters into your thinking when you're on the island? Do you think about the, the history of of light keepers and their families that were such an important part of that, that place for so long? Oh, absolutely, all the time. Um, I mean, it's very important to remember 
the very close relationship between the main lights and particularly the seabird ecology here in the Northeast. So back at the end of the 19th century, we almost lost most of our seabirds here in the Northeast, and the few colonies that were hanging on were on the outer islands that were hard for the market gunners to get to. And the American Ornithological Union and the early Audubon Society got together and created what they called the Thayer Fund, which basically hired the lighthouse keepers as game wardens to protect the remaining birds on lighthouse islands. And so the light keepers on Great Duck were looking after both Great Duck and Little Duck in the um, 1890s and the early 1900s. And there are some wonderful accounts, both from the light keepers and the light keepers' wives, about their actions to protect the birds and to make sure that the hunters weren't coming out to destroy the colonies. So that's a really important story that can't be emphasized enough. The lighthouses, in a very important way, were some of the earliest uh, wildlife refuges in this country. Were rabbits introduced by some of the, the lighthouse families a little bit later, which really changed the ecology of the island for a while? That's one of the things that we're really interested in right now. So we know that sometime, we think in the early 1930s, the son of the lighthouse keeper, the Stanley family had been head keepers for a number of years, and the eldest son is reported to be the person who introduced um, burying hair on the island. So we've got these snowshoe hair um, starting in the early 1930s. And they are our only permanent mammal on the island at this point. And we're really very interested in what sort of an effect they're having on the island's ecology. Uh, Great Duck has a very different flora than you find on a lot of other islands. And one of the neat things about that is that we've got a spruce forest, but it has no understory. And the spruce forest is particularly important for our leeches storm petrels. Um, we've been conducting fairly intensive studies of the petrels for the last several years. And right now it looks like something over 90% of all the petrels in the northeast of the United States are nesting on Great and Little Duck, with the majority being on Great Duck. And we think the reason for this is, is that we have a forest with very little understory, and it's an ideal place for the petrels to burrow. So they're not surface nesters like the gulls. They actually burrow into the soil. And we think there's about 15,000 pairs, plus or minus 5,000. It's very hard to get a really precise count on them um, nesting on the island at this point. So it's kind of an interesting question because we think the forest is really important habitat for the birds, but we also see there's no forest regeneration going on. So spruce seems to have stopped regrowing on the island sometime in the early 50s. And that's you know a really interesting piece of the puzzle that we haven't been able to find because we think that the hare were introduced at least 20, maybe 30 years before regeneration stopped. And then suddenly, we don't get any more young spruce. So the commonly accepted wisdom is that the hare eat the young spruce in the winter and prevent regeneration. They 
certainly is something that's preventing regeneration and any other sort of understory. And if we don't find a way of getting more spruce to grow, the island will probably lose its forest within the next 10 to 15 years. Every year we get more blowdowns. That could be a bad thing for the petrels. But the flip side is that it may be the absence of an understory that actually makes the area so suitable for petrels. So one of our concerns is if we get rid of the hare and we get a very dense understory, that may not be suitable habitat either. So it's a kind of between the devil and the deep blue sea situation. But I think it really is an interesting example of sort of the subtle effects of the chain of light stations and human habitation. Because if you come onto the island, at first glance you think, you know, wow, most of this island is wild. And yet it's possible that an awful lot of its flora and its overall landscape is the product of this one chance introduction by a bored teenager back hmm. nearly 100 years ago. Well, that's really interesting. If we could uh, switch gears a little bit, I, I wonder, I'm wondering if you could tell a little bit more about what typically happens on the island in summer. Uh, what sorts of research are done there by you and the students from College of the Atlantic? In a typical non-COVID summer, so right. this summer unfortunately is not going to be a usual summer for us, um, but in a typical summer, I bring between four and eight students out to the island um, in June and July. And they work with me on a range of projects. Most of them do relate to either botany or zoology, but we also encourage the arts. And so there have been some really magical art students who've come out to the island and spent the summer drawing and painting and just really trying to convey the nature of the island um, as part of their work. But the sort of questions we're really interested in is um, what's happening with the seabird populations on the island? Um, we've seen over the last 22 years a huge shift in where the herring and blackback gulls are nesting. So we map the whole island into our geographic information system. So we have everything in the computer and we can compare one year to the next to see where the birds are and changes in vegetation structure. And that in itself is a pretty big undertaking, but that's not really science, that's just data collection. Um, the science comes in in trying to analyze why the changes that we see are occurring. And one of the things that we're really very interested in and concerned about is the impact of bald eagles on seabird colonies up and down the coast. And over the last decade, we've seen an enormous increase in the frequency and intensity of bald eagle predation on the island. And the bald eagles seem to have driven the gulls from the north end of the island, which is largely unoccupied by people, down to the light station. When we first came out, we rather naively thought that, okay, the station had been abandoned for 15 years. Um, there were lots of, not lots of, there were about 100 pairs of gulls down around the station. And we worried that us being there in the summer during the breeding season might drive the birds away. That's why we started mapping the precise location of nests. But much to our surprise, we found that every year we've had more gulls nesting in the vicinity of the station rather than less, some of them very close indeed to the house and the lighthouse. And actually, when we go back into the historical record and read the accounts of the lightkeepers, 
The light keepers specifically say that the gulls were all nesting in and around the station. So just at the northern boundary of the station in those days, there was a fence that marked the federal limit of the property. And as far as I can tell, virtually all the gulls in the first quarter of the 20th century were nesting inside that fence around the station buildings. And like I say, the light keepers and their families were acting as wardens and guardians of the birds and keeping them safe from any sort of hunting. I don't think there's any ancestral memory of that, um, but in a weird way, we're doing the same thing, only we're not protecting the birds from human hunters. Our presence does seem to dissuade the bald eagles. We don't do anything active to chase the bald eagles off. Um, that would be both illegal and un unethical, we think. But just us up in the lighthouse tower, we see the bald eagles coming down the island. They see us, and they make a U-turn and go back up to the north end. So we're really interested in that. We're really interested in the petrel breeding biology, where they're nesting on the island. We're also interested in the black guillemots. They're one of the less abundant main birds, but great duck is one of the centers of their population. So depending on who's doing the counting, either great duck or Penobscot seal island are the biggest colonies of black guillemots in the state. And so every couple of years, we try and map the location of guillemot nesting around the perimeter of the island, and we're keeping track on what they're feeding on. Um, we're also really interested in what the gulls are feeding on. So we've been putting GPS tags on a number of our birds over the last five years, and these allow us to know where the birds have gone, both in the summer and also when they leave the island in the winter. And what we're finding is, is that whereas gulls as a whole are real generalists, individual birds are hyper-specialized. So we've got some birds that seem to only follow fishing boats, and that's where they're going for their food. Others only go to areas like the bars between Baker and the Cranberry Islands um, or Bar Island and uh, Mount Desert and they're feeding in the intertidal there. Others, I'm ashamed to say, go to the, the um, transfer stations and are feeding on garbage. And then in the winter, it's really interesting because the pattern holds up. If you're feeding on garbage um, in Southwest Harbor during the summer, you're heading south um, and stopping off at landfills as you go. Um, whereas if you're an inter intertidal specialist, that's what you're doing, and you're showing up again and again in the intertidal as far south as the Chesapeake. We're also really interested in common eider. Common eider used to be a very common sea duck here in Maine. The numbers seem to have declined tremendously, and so we're trying to monitor as closely as we can the survival of the duck, uh, ducklings, and we can do that from the lighthouse tower without bothering them. So it's a wonderful platform for doing that sort of work. As long as we're up in the tower, we see no signs that the birds are bothered by us, and we can keep track of what they're doing, what they're feeding on, and if anyone is going after them. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the general things that we do down, out there. Right. Uh, you spoke quite a bit about the, the nesting gull populations. Is it important to protect gull populations? And if so, why is that important? That's always a question that seems to pop up. You know, gulls have the curse of being 
in a lot of people's minds, um, but without people really understanding as much as I'd love them to about both the biology and, if you will, the folklore of gulls. Um, gulls aren't really seabirds. They're found inland, so there are big colonies of California gulls on the Great Salt Lake and places like that in the heart of the continent. Gulls tend to be along shorelines, either lake shorelines or the marine shoreline. And, you know, you read the accounts of mariners going all the way back a thousand years. And gulls aren't a sign of the deep. They're a sign you're getting close to land. And so they're sort of part of our background, if you will, when we go down to the beach and, oh, yes, there's a gull. Populations of gulls increased a great deal um, with protection at the end of the 19th and the first quarter of the 20th century. But one of the really frightening things that's happening is, is that the population of virtually all the gulls in the northern hemisphere has been declining very dramatically in the last 25 to 30 years. And we'd noticed this happening here in Maine. And then um, I put together a symposium in Germany and just sent out messages to my friends who studied gulls and said, let's all get together and compare notes about what our gulls are doing um, as part of the Waterbird Society meetings in Wilhelmshaven. And so we got people from the U.S., Canada, Germany, Great Britain, Europe, and um, we all were comparing our notes, and everybody's populations were going down. And it seems that something very strange is happening all around the North Atlantic Basin that we don't really understand. And that's really frightening because it probably suggests there isn't just one cause. There are several different things happening. And so, you know, quite apart from the fact that I think gulls are incredibly beautiful and they're a wonderful sort of expression of the wild, they're also potential tripwires that can warn us against real ecological problems. And when you see a species that seems, or a group of species, because this isn't just herring gulls and it isn't just blackback gulls, but when you see a whole group of species that have quite a broad ecology and are suddenly going into decline, mm -hmm. that's a real worry. All too often when we think about conservation, we don't start thinking really seriously about conservation until we're down to the last few dozen individuals. And by then it's quite often too late. So I'd much rather that we would start thinking conservation when we still have fairly sizable populations rather than waiting until they're almost all gone. Makes a lot of sense to me. Again, I was reading your bio on the College of the Atlantic website, and I thought it was interesting that you uh, you said you resent missing Darwin by less than a century. I was just wondering if you ever kind of feel like a modern Darwin, and maybe like, <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like Great Duck Island is your Galapagos? Is that something that ever occurs to you? I have no illusions about my <laughs> intellect. Um, so, you know, Darwin is absolutely my hero and you know i do make i do find it incredibly sad you know we've had billions of years of the earth and i miss them by what doesn't even amount to a hair's breadth what i wouldn't give to take a walk with him around the sandwalk and talk to him about ecology and evolution it would be such a wonderful wonderful conversation i think that the closest i can claim to 
real relationship with Darwin is that Darwin didn't ever describe himself as a scientist. That word wasn't really very common in his time. He said that he was a man much interested in natural history. And I'm much interested in natural history. And there are, I think, I would like to believe once again, a growing group of us who feel that natural history is actually a critical component of the sciences that has been neglected for too long. And that's a lot of what we're trying to do with Great Duck in terms of training the next generation of scientists. So the really important thing about the island is it gives the student the opportunity to observe very closely and in an organized fashion over the course of a whole season, or some of them come back for more than one season. And it's out of that close observation that come the really interesting questions. And that's what we saw Darwin doing. So Darwin, when he's going around the world in the Beagle, it's not like he's got this theory that he's planning to prove. He's got ideas, but he's taking really, really good notes of geology and botany and zoology. Everything that comes across his bows, he's intrigued with and he's making notes about. And it's out of that sort of massive information that he develops what he calls his long argument, which is evolution by natural selection. And I think that's a really important way to do science. And I also think it's really important for students who aren't going to be scientists to have that experience. So it really troubles me that all too often, it seems these days, students are told that being a scientist involves going into a lab and learning a technique, which may be kind of cool right now, but it's going to be out of date in five years. And that's the end of their science training. And then years later, they're trying to be on the local town conservation commission, or they're being asked to testify before some board somewhere. And they don't have the skills of careful observation in the field that they're going to need to really be able to give the information that's going to be important in people's everyday lives. So what the island really is, is it's a place for that very careful con contemplation, out of which comes the really important questions. And again, this is where I think it, the fact that it's a light island is so important, because we don't make any bones about it. This is an island that people have lived on and off for 200 years, and their presence on the island has shaped the place in very important ways. And one of the things I love is, is that when we look into the history of the light station, um, Great Duck had three families looking after the light. And in those days, families were very big. So at one point, there were more than 30 children on the island. And yet there were still nesting seabirds. And that's critically important when we look at the world today, because what that says is that done right, even in a really constricted, restrained place like a small island. You can have quite a few people and the wild living right next to each other and getting along. And that's a very different model than you get from some conservationists who say, you know, humans bad, what we need to do is fence off the wild from them, keep them out. Um, I think that's a really, really short-sighted strategy for conservation. You know, if you tell people enough they're bad and you tell them you, that you can't go there, you can't actually see stuff, 
um, how do you expect them to be excited enough to protect things? But if you say, this is something that is very beautiful and very fragile, look at it very carefully and enjoy it, that's when people fall in love. And that's when they're willing to actually do conservation. And so I think these light islands are wonderful sort of labs where we can show this sort of co-equal history and natural history where organisms have got along surprisingly well for quite a long time. You also mentioned in your bio that you have a deep and abiding love of poetry. Uh, and I'm wondering <laughs> if there are any particular poems or poets that you think of when you think of Great Duck Island. You know, I'm really lucky right now because I have a small group of students who came to me back um, beginning of the year and said, John, we know you like poetry. We like poetry. Will you read poetry with us? <laughs> and so every week we get together and we read poems. And then we had to go online. And I said, well, guys, you know, we've been having our poetry breakfast every Friday. And I said, well, I'm going to miss it. And they said, why would we have to miss it? Um, let's just keep on doing it. We'll just have to make our own coffee and do it on Zoom. And we're actually we we're actually going to have our last poetry meeting of the term this evening. And I was just trying to oh. think of a poem that I could contribute. But, you know, I love a huge range of poets. T.S. Eliot is one of my absolute favorites in all the world. And he weaves the sea into a number of his poems. His poem, Marina, is an absolutely wonderful thing to think about when you're walking through the forest on Great Duck. You know, what bays, what shores, what islands through the fog, what images return, oh, my daughter. That's what the island's like. There's also a wonderful poem by Rachel Field that I read to all of the students when they come out to the island, um, once you've slept on an island. Mm -hmm. And you know, the last lines, once you've stepped on an island, you'll never be quite the same. Yeah. And it's absolutely true. So, broad range of poets, and, you know, we've got an awful lot of salt water running through some good poets' veins. We were reading Tennyson three or four weeks ago, and, you know, sunset and evening star and one clear call for me, and may there be no moaning of the bar when I put out to sea. It's just, it's just great stuff, and it's really magical to me that another whole generation is finding this, and they're also sort of tying it back to the land. And that's, again, another really important thing for us to think about, is how there have been people on this land for at least 5,000 years, and they've all got stories, and they've all got names, and that's a lot of what we're trying to do. We're trying to find those stories and find those names. But 5,000 years is a very, very long time. Great Duck doesn't have a human history that goes back that far. We've looked and looked for any sign of American Indian occupation of the island, and we haven't found any trace of that. So there are big shell mountains on the islands to the north. But we think that Great Duck it didn't have running water, um, it's a hard place to land, and so we think that probably it just didn't give much reason to settle on the way places like God's Island did. But, you know, 200 years, you can amass an awful lot of human history, too, and that's really important. Another poem that I always read to everybody, um, are you familiar with Ruth Moore? 
Everybody who's on the coast here in Maine ought to read Ruth. She was amazing. Um, she grew up on Gods, and she's written wonderful novels about the sort of end of the year-round island communities in the 1920s and 30s. But she was also a, po a poet, and she wrote a really brilliant poem about the Indian shell mound on Gods Island, which... You know, the opening is just magic. In the quiet of the morning, the island lies still. And so I take the students out. We just sit in a circle in front of the station, and I read them that one. And it's sort of the history and natural history of God's Island of that for a thousand years, all tied into one poem. And then Gordon Bach, who is, I think, the poet laureate of the main coast, has set several of her poems to music. Oh, okay. And again, we, we play those. And it's just, you know, it's it's a magical interface between the human and the non-human and between science and art. And all of that's what we call human ecology. John, let's get back to the light station. Uh, the college, of course, has to keep the buildings in decent condition. Uh, what kind of restoration projects and improvements have been completed since uh, College of the Atlantic took ownership? To be perfectly honest, the station was in pretty bad condition when we got it. So, um, you know, I wonder if our president had known the condition, if he would have let us take it. Um, but we've benefited from some really generous supporters. We actually call the field station the Alice Eno Field Station, named after one of our incredibly generous trustees who basically sat me down and said, fix up that station of yours. And thanks to Alice, we were able to get the boat ramp completely rebuilt. It had been entirely destroyed before we got the island. We've had to reshingle all the buildings and reside them because the siding was all rotting out. Um, the north end of the keeper's house, the silt had all rotted, and that was actually collapsing. And so that all needed to be replaced. Um, some features were actually in really good shape. So um, we brought an electrician out, and I was afraid he was going to say, you know, you have to rip out all the old wiring and start from scratch. And he just laughed, and he said, those old folks knew what they were doing. This is all really good wiring. It's in great shape. I can just, you know, do the connections and make it safe for you. So we've installed a solar system that powers um, the station. So we're running entirely re reusable as far as that goes. The only non-reusable energy we're using these days is a bit of propane for the stove. We've also fixed up the interior of the house. Um, it was in very bad shape. The Coast Guard had put rather nasty plastic flooring down, and we've taken that up and um, put new wooden flooring in and... They had drop ceilings that were collapsing, and those are gone. And so the inside of the house, as well as the outside, is now much more livable. We discovered, or I should say the electrician discovered, that just before they left, the Coast Guard had drilled a well. Um, it doesn't actually have potable water. It's too high in iron for you to drink, but it's great for washing. And so we've got that hooked up, so now we can wash dishes in ourselves. Uh, without having to bring either water from the mainland for that or use seawater. So that's been a big plus. But the most important thing, you know, first of all, was to get the ramp working so we actually had an easy landing and then make sure the buildings were shedding water, so new, sh new shingles, and then the siding. So 
they keep out the wind. And so it's been a very expensive undertaking, but I think it's been well worth it. And had we not done it, I don't think there'll be much of a station left by now. I know the work is never done. There's always something to do, but uh, are there any major restoration projects in the pipeline at this point? We're going to be having to do some more painting. Like you say, it's never really done. You finish one end of the station and it's time to start painting the other. And so that's the thing I'm looking at um, for this summer is to get some more paint on the outside to get the gutters replaced. One major project that we'd like to get done, if we can find the right donor, would be to get the old boardwalk replaced. Um, So there used to be a boardwalk that ran from the keeper's house down to the light, and that has completely rotted away over the years. And it'd be nice to have that back up, both for historical reasons and also um, just as a usable thing in wet weather to get down to the lighthouse. That's one of the really fun parts about doing the history of the station, because you see how it's evolved over the years. So they talked about putting a station out on Great Duck for nearly a century, and when they finally got around to doing it, it was amazingly quick. So in just under a year, they built the tower, they built the generator house, they built three keeper's cottages, they built two boathouses, and they built the rain shed. And, you know, they started in, I think, February, and they lighted the light in on December 31st, 1890. So a really amazing amount of construction in a very short period of time. But then over the years, things came and went. Um, they actually installed a railway between the western boathouse and the generator shed so they could get coal up to fire the old coal um, steam engine. Um, But that only lasted a few years. Um, You know, it's quite impressive when you see the pictures, but then you realize that actually it was gone within a decade. Um, There was a barn that was um, on the west side that seems to have been important for the construction, but it disappears sometime in the first 20 years of the station's life. So it's kind of fun just seeing it's a constantly moving target. And now that we have the place, in some ways we're freezing it at one particular moment in time. But, um, you know, we'll see what happens over the years. We're recording today on June 5th, 2020, but people will be hearing this uh, about a month or so from now in July. You mentioned it earlier a little bit, but how is the COVID-19 pandemic affecting operations on Great Duck Island? What, if anything, is happening there this summer? Because of the pandemic, we're having to really cut back on our operations So, as I said at the beginning, usually I have between four and eight students out on the island for the breeding season. Um, This summer, I'll only have two. Um, I'll be taking a small team of alums out to the island, I hope, in the next couple of days to do our island count. We try and count the entire island for herring and blackback gulls every year. And so we'll hopefully get that done in the next few days. And then the two students who will be out for the rest of the season, we'll be coming out after that, and I'll get them set up with projects. And they'll be out there until the end of July. In past years, we've then had a program for high school students. So we've had 14 high school students who come out for several days and learn a bit of field ecology and natural history on the island. We can't do that this year because of the pandemic. 
but we're hoping to get some video um, and still imagery that we can use in future years in that program. But it'll be a much smaller human presence than it's been in, you know, 22 years. Sure. Well, I sure hope things are back to normal next year. I have one more question for you, John, for bonus points. What is your favorite thing about the work you've done uh, over these years on Great Duck Island? Oh, that's easy for students. You know, they're, they're a magical, magical crew. And they've gone on to do wonderful things. So I hate to boast, but literally every single duckling that's applied to graduate programs has gotten in so far. And they aren't just being scientists. Some of them are being lawyers. Some of them being doctors. Some of them are being vets. Some of them being farmers. But um, it's been this wonderful, wonderful training ground where young people can really, really find themselves. And, you know, you need to come back. Um, To me, the greatest magic is the first day of a season where you've got half a dozen brand new kids who don't know what they're doing and they're on the ramp and they're getting in the way of each other and they're tripping over everything. And then seven weeks later, it's like a machine. Everybody knows what to do and they're helping folks out of the boat and they're getting things into the boat and it goes like clockwork. And the sort of self-confidence and the sort of real internal balance that you get living for a couple of months on an island like this and learning how to run a station, it's just more valuable than anything else you could possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. John Anderson, it's been a rare pleasure talking with you today. Uh, my visit to Great Duck Island with you back in 2002 was one of my most memorable lighthouse visits ever. I remember being so impressed by the students and their enthusiasm. I sure hope I can get back there sometime. I would love to do that. I hope I can make it. Uh, Congratulations on all you've accomplished. Keep up the great work. And thank you again so much for spending this time with me today, John. Thank you so much indeed. And please do plan on coming back. To learn more about the College of the Atlantic's programs on Great Duck Island, go to coa.edu and enter Great Duck Island in the search box. By the way, there's also a privately owned house on the island that's available as a vacation rental by the week called the Great Duck Island House. Check out greatduckislandhouse.com. Thanks again to our guest, John Anderson of College of the Atlantic. And thanks again to all the members, volunteers, and staff at the U.S. Lighthouse Society and all its chapters and affiliates. Check out uslhs.org online to learn about everything the Society has to offer. Thanks to all the volunteers and staff of Lighthouse organizations all over the country and all over the world, and to everyone who works to save history of any kind. We're all on the same team. If you're listening to us through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. And as always, thanks so much for listening and keep a good light. I'm going